The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, thank you, choir and orchestra. Always gets our heart ready for worship. And uh, it's good to be back with you at uh, First Baptist Church Richardson and uh, share these uh, next seven weeks, seven weeks of uh, preaching with you and uh, you know, I want to make a promise to you, okay, and uh, get one back from you. I want to promise you that I'm not going to just go dig in my sack of sermons and retread some stuff, okay? I want to make a promise to you that the next seven weeks that I will do everything before God to have a fresh word for you and uh, something that God would speak to our hearts because... To be honest with you, I think we're living in a day right now where folks are tired of going through the motions of church. I think there's some things stirring around our nation and in God's church right now that I'll be honest with you, I don't want to miss by just going someplace and talking a little while about God. Do you feel that way? Uh, You see around our nation what happened at Asbury University Uh, 384 straight hours, college students gathered to pray, unprompted by anything but the Spirit of God. 384 straight hours of worship and prayer and confession and seeking God. And and, uh, something's going on now in over 200 campuses around the nation. This is breaking out. Down at Baylor, had 2,000 students gather spontaneously for a prayer meeting. At, even at Texas A&M, can anything good happen in College Station? <laughs> students gathering for the Lord. I know in, in our church where we go, Fielder Church, God's doing something. Our pastor, uh, Jason Paredes, was so convicted about the need of prayer in our church. Last Easter, he declared that Wednesday night we were calling off everything except prayer. And we'd be gathering on our campuses to pray. It is not an accident that since Easter last year, we have baptized over 350 people. And we changed one thing. We started praying. Last Wednesday night, I was at our prayer meeting. And uh, on a Wednesday night, 400 people gathered to pray. And a spontaneous prayer is breaking out all over. And so I, I don't know about you. I don't know how many days we have left on this earth or I have left, but I don't want to waste them. And I promise you that these times together will not be a waste. It'll be something we want God to do in this place. And I've entitled these seven sermons, Final Instructions. You say, Gary, what do you mean by final instructions? Well, you know, when you get final instructions, it's always the most important stuff, the last thing they want you to remember. You remember that time when your kids were learning to drive and they went out that one time, that first time by themselves? Do you know what you gave them? Final instructions, okay? Uh, Don't speed, don't get distracted, don't turn the music up too loud. What are you doing? You wanted some last thoughts to be in their mind that they would remember as they were driving, uh, driving along. Well, I believe as we look at the life of Jesus, certainly everything Jesus said counted and was important. But I believe in his last days, he was honing in on some things 
He wanted them to remember more than anything else. Some things he wanted them to grasp more than anything else. And we're going to look at something today that uh, is a little foreign to us uh, as Baptists. We're going to watch Jesus wash feet today, okay? Why don't you stand with me, okay? Let's stand together and honor the Word of God. Turn to John chapter number 13. John chapter number 13. And it says, before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come uh, to to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and going back, what did he do? It says very simply, he rose from the supper, He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them uh, with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to old Simon Peter. Aren't you glad Simon was around? You know, he's a guy who takes one foot out of his mouth to put the other one in, okay? And uh, he said to him, Lord, did you wash my feet? He said, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterwards, you're going to understand what's going on. Peter said, well, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you shall have no share of me. Simon Peter said, well, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. If you are clean, not every one of you is clean. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put aside his outer garments, uh, put on his outer garments, resumed his place and said to them, do you understand? Do you understand what I've done to you? Do, do you understand today what Jesus was doing in that moment? I, I don't know about you. I want to understand. He said, you call me teacher, Lord. You're right. For so I am. If I then your father, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, feet you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that also you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. And blessed are you who do this. And I'm not speaking of all of you, because one has been chosen that the scripture um, would be fulfilled. The one who ate this bread and the one who's about to betray him. You may be seated. You've got to recognize the setting of this incredible event to completely understand what's going on. First of all, Jesus is in his last hours with his apostles. He's about to go to the cross, be resurrected from the dead and ascend to heaven, send the Holy Spirit. Then you've got Judas in that crowd. Judas, this guy controlled by the evil one, had been, had it put in his heart to betray Jesus. Many have asked why. Well, we really don't know why. Some have speculated that maybe he was trying to force Jesus to do something dramatic. Who knows? All we know is, is the devil was acting, although the devil wasn't in charge. But then you got that bunch of disciples there. And you begin to look at what's going on and realize how shallow, how shallow their thinking was. Uh, James and John, who many believe might have been a cousin of Jesus, uh, their mother had come to Jesus wanting to know if their boys could have a high place in what he was doing. And many, many times when Jesus was doing incredible miracles, 
and great things were happening, what were they doing? They were sitting around arguing about who would be first, who would be best, who would sit at Jesus' right and his left hand. Jesus was speaking to this group of people that one of these days would lead his church. And he wanted them to understand how foreign this was to what God would have them to do. That how this arguing about who would be first in line and who would be chosen and who would have the best seats, so foreign to what he wanted to do. Because he was constantly trying to get them to see that there's a way of life that is contrary to what they've been living. If they want to live, they've got to learn to die. They want to learn to receive. They've got a first gift. They want to be first in the eyes of God. What do they do? They go to the back of the line. And what he was describing was a trait that Jesus tried to lift up more than any other trait and is portrayed in Scripture more than any other trait, the trait of humility. This idea of humility of someone who is low in rank, someone who has become insignificant, someone who is inferior, someone not focused on self but focused on others, someone willing to make, take the back seat to the needs of others, someone not proud or self-seeking. As you study through the scripture, it is a quality that is constantly lifted up through the scriptures. In Colossians, it speaks of a person who's not puffed up. In Romans, it speaks of someone who doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But of course, the greatest picture of it is found by Jesus, in Jesus himself, described to us in Philippians, says, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, though he's in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He being found as a human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Jesus could have come to this earth and demanded that place. He did everything and had everything in his power to demand that place where every knee and every tongue would bow and everyone would say that you're Lord. But what did he do? He didn't choose to do it that way. He chose the pathway of humility. And that humility is what brought upon him the glory and the power of God. I was with a friend of mine recently who spoke at that revival that happened at Asbury. Bill Elif, probably my best friend. Bill and I are buddies. And, and Bill was there for their last meeting that lasted. It's supposed to end at nine and went on to midnight. I said, Bill, what one trait what one quality did you find that was pervasive across the entire board of this meeting? He said, it was very easy. It's humility, humility, humility. For you and I to be what God wants us to be, for us to find the blessing God wants us to be, it's not in promoting ourselves, rushing to the front of the line, wanting to be in charge. The Bible says very simply, the power of God comes through humility. Say, well, Gary, how, how do you think someone gets there? Well, let me just describe to you several things I see out of this text, these two texts. The first one is it starts with spiritual bankruptcy. <laughs> you say, Gary, what in the world is spiritual bankruptcy? It's a phrase I've just grabbed a hold of in the last few days as Sandy and I have been doing some Lenten devotionals together. And, and, the, and the devotion spoke about spiritual bankruptcy. 
And I thought, what in the world is it when we become bankrupt spiritually? Well, that word bankrupt applies to someone in a bad financial condition. It's a person who has used all of their resources and the resources have run out and they don't know what to do. It is someone who who has a debt that is greater than they could ever repay. It is someone who can do, has done all they can do. They still can't get out. They still can't succeed. What they need is someone to rescue them. That's the beginning point of humility. It is a spiritual attitude that, that, that realizes that we've done all we can. It realizes there's nothing we can do to change things. It realizes we keep coming short and coming short and coming short. And what do we do? We cry out to someone to rescue us. That's what spiritual bankruptcy is. You see, as long as you and I think We bring something to the spiritual table that gets us a place in the kingdom of God. We will never understand humility. It's when we realize, when we realize we've done all we can. There's nothing else to do. It's a place of desperation. It is a place of crying out and saying, God, if you don't rescue me, I will never make it. I will never succeed. I will never be what you want me to be. I'll never see you use my life for your glory. It is a spiritual bankruptcy that says very simply, I'm someone of no value except what value God brings to my life. And that's why Jesus chose in this illustration to do physically what he did. Here, this man who had taught like nobody had ever taught, this man who could say to the waters, be still, storm be still, this man who could heal miraculously in a moment. What did he do at that table with all these people fighting for themselves, wanting to be at the top level? What does he do? He chooses to show them a servant, a slave. In fact, many people believe when he took off those outer garments, everyone recognized what would happen in a home, that when they would come to a home, they would recline at the table or maybe at the front door, a slave would come and wash feet. Now, many times the slaves were there because of a debt they owed to the owner and they were slaverhood was paying that debt out. And so they would come there and work for nothing so that that debt would be removed. And yet Jesus used that illustration to speak to us the place where the power of God comes to our life. Our willingness to be a slave, a servant. I thought about a servant or a slave. That word found in Romans 12, Romans 1, 1. I call a bond servant of Jesus Christ. What is a slave or a servant? It's somebody who has nothing. Somebody who can't make it except by what the owner gives to them. Someone who owns nothing on their own. Everything must be given to them and brought to them. It is a spiritual bankruptcy, this humility. It is someone who has decided to take that place of a servant, to become a slave, to say, I'm in a place of desperation and I need God. If you're there today, by the way, you are not living contrary to the ways of God. You're positioning yourself for the power of God because it's out of desperation and the need to be rescued that the power of God really comes. So it starts with a spiritual bankruptcy. But secondly, it moves from that to a sense of gratitude. You see, what begins to happen in our lives is when God begins to rescue us, do we pat ourselves on the back 
when God lifts us out of our lives and moves us forward, when God comforts us as no one else can comfort us, do we stand up and say, look what I've done? No, what begins to dwell within our soul is a deep, deep, deep sense of gratitude, recognition that except by the mercy and the grace of God, we would have nothing. And what it dwells up within our soul is a sense of thanksgiving. That's why it says when we come to worship, we don't come to worship with our pride and abilities and what we can bring to the room. No, the Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Why? Because we come to this place, not out of a sense of accomplishment, but out of a sense of desperation. And we say, oh God, today I come to this place because there's a deep need within my life. And what happens to us? The more that we see that need met, the more we experience the rescue of God, what, what develops within our soul a deep sense of gratitude, a deep sense of, Lord, I'll be generous because you've been so generous with me, a deep sense of grace because God's grace has been so powerful within our lives. What it begins to produce within our soul is a sense, oh, Lord, you have rescued me. You are the one have come to my place of desperation and you've so moved within my life something that I could not do for myself that today I come before you. I come before you in a sense of humility and in gratitude. He did this, remember, not with a group of folks who were the religious leaders of his day or the intellectuals of the university. No, he chose a group of Galilean fishermen. Galilean fishermen crooked tax collectors. He took the very dregs and low part of their society. Why did he do that? To show the power of God. And those men, as they begin to understand this, begin to be men and women who understand, understood how grateful they ought to be because God has done so much within their lives to allow them to be able to walk with him and to know him. I'm afraid what many times we do is we spend our lives thinking about what we don't have. Thinking about how God has not done what we wanted him to do. How God maybe has allowed some things within our life that are hurtful and painful. And we develop some resentfulness to God because we think we deserve some things. In reality, if we got what we deserved, we'd be in big trouble. We'd be in big trouble. You see, the attitude of humility starts with a spiritual bankruptcy, but begins to understand how the power of God's been at work within our lives and moves to a deep sense of gratitude and understanding of all that we have comes from the hand of God. I I saw this illustrated in my life several years ago when I uh, went to my first mission trip. I was a pastor of a small church in Northwest Oklahoma And I'd really never been much around the United States. My parents didn't take vacations. I'd been to California once, never seen the rest of the world, and came to know Christ, became a pastor, and lived in a little cocoon of American Christianity. And our state convention sponsored a mission trip to the Philippines. Now, I know where the Philippines is. Uh, 
man by the name of Thurman Broughton was a missionary there who had helped lead my brother to Christ, who helped lead me to Christ. So Thurman was a hero of mine. I'd heard when he had come to our church him speak about the Philippines. I couldn't wait to go there and especially to take the power of God to that place and let them see what God was doing, a blessing of, of Christianity. And so we head to the Philippines. We fly into Manila and we stayed at a beautiful five-star hotel there in downtown Manila. Ate great food and this was wonderful. And, and then they flew us down to the lower island of Mindanao and we went to Davao City and stayed at a nice resort and they were getting us ready to go out and serve in these churches. And they said, okay, Gary, you're heading out by yourself. They put me in the back of what was known as a jeepney. It's the old jeeps from World War II. Started driving me out through the bush, out in the rural areas. And all of a sudden I didn't see any power lines because they didn't have electricity. Began to see an old beat up road and they pulled in this little town called Mogpet town that only had electricity for eight months. There were no indoor facilities, no place to take a bath or anything like that. And they just dropped me off in front of that church, that place that rural folks uh, didn't know a long ago, thank goodness, some people knew English. And they said, you're going to minister to these people for two weeks. And I can remember getting off and saying, well, I can do a lot for these folks, Okay. <laughs> You know, I can tell them about how great God is and, and bring something to their lives that they don't have because they, they live under such poverty and they're living in such a backward condition and let them really see the greatness and the power of God. Little did I know <laughs> they were going to teach me a whole lot more than I ever taught them. Yeah, I was in a house that didn't have any indoor facilities. I'd go out by the pump and they'd pump water and I'd use soap in my bathing suit for a bath or whatever and and uh, no one had much electricity. I'd go to houses that were mud huts. But I'd realize when I'd go to those houses that were mud huts, those people would cook a week's worth of food just to honor me, show their gratitude to me for coming. And in fact, I learned that when you were an honored guest, they'd kill the dog <laughs> and cook that rascal. That's why I kept eating white meat the whole time, all right? But I begin to watch them in their simple life of dependence upon God. Where death was a daily experience in that rural land they were living in. But I began to see something in their life I'd never experienced in American Christianity. I saw the power of God. I saw people saved by the scores. I saw lives transformed. I saw a church that gathered every Tuesday at 5 o'clock to pray all week for what God was doing. And I began to see something that I'd never seen before and began to realize the power of God is not in all these trappings and stuff we wear and things we do. The power of God comes out of a sense of desperation, a sense of need, a sense of gratitude. And when it comes, the power of God is present in ways we cannot manufacture and I saw in them a gratitude for God that I'd never experienced in my life. In fact, even to this day, when I sit down to eat, I can't leave food on a plate because I remember how much those people gave to me during that time. You see, when you and I began to really grab a hold of what God has done for you and me, not these padded seats or this air-conditioned room or nice house, when we began to dig down deep into the mercy of God and understand the mercy of God, 
something will begin to boil out of our soul called gratitude, thanksgiving, not entitlement, pride and accomplishment. Jesus said that's where humility comes. It comes out of that person who's willing to become that servant, that slave. But then another thing about it, when you begin to look at humility, listen to this word. It may be the most important word related to humility. And that is the fact that humility is always, listen to that word, always a choice. See, if we would be honest, humility doesn't come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is to be at the front of the line. What comes naturally to us is to receive accolades from other people. What comes naturally for us is to gather for ourselves and to make ourselves happy and to do whatever it takes and manipulate everything to get ourselves happy and get what we want. You see, what stands in complete juxtaposition to that is the attitude of humility. And it's always humility that chooses to go to the back of the line. It's humility that chooses to put someone else in front of us. It's humility, it's a choice that we make. It's the result of us believing that God blesses going to the back of the line. And you look in this text, it says Jesus got up. He chose to get up in front of them. He chose to take off those garments. He chose to wash those feet. And they watched him there in front of them doing that, saying, don't, don't, don't do that. He's saying, no, I want you just to see. The greatest joy and satisfaction in life not comes in having your feet washed, but being the one who washes the feet. But I look at this Philippians passage. It says Jesus emptied himself. Now think about that for a minute. God didn't make him empty himself. The world did not make him empty himself. Jesus looked at the world's situation with all the glory of heaven as his, all the greatness of heaven and purity and wonder of being in the presence of God. And he chose to empty himself. Wow. Do you know what humility is? It's a great emptying process in which God helps us learn to choose to put self on the cross Take the last place. Let somebody else get it and not us. Jesus did that as a choice. And you you begin to see how continually they looked and said, my goodness, continually he chose this choice. Continually he chose the choice of humility. Continually he chose to put himself behind. Continually he chose himself to be humble. Taking on the form of a servant. He even described about himself. He said, guys and girls, I didn't come to be served, but to do what? To serve, give myself a ransom for many. The greatest description of love in all the world. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. You see, humility becomes a choice that we make. And what God wants to do with that choice is he not only wants to bless us, But he wants to let others around us see the God way to do things. He wants our humility, our choosing to take the back seat, to be something that he uses as an apt illustration to others. And others begin to see that and begin to see that's a trait of God, not what I'm doing. I'd had this experience 
several years ago, Sandy and I, I was asked to go preach at Riverside Baptist Church in Denver. They had just lost their pastor in a tragic car accident. His son was driving the car and had an accident coming across Kansas. And they just asked me to come and minister to the church. And, and, and there was a guy who was the, uh, Joel uh, Allen, who was a, the minister of music. There was best friends with our minister of music. That's how the connection was made. And Joel calls me a week or two before and said, hey, do you want to come up early and have a few days off? And you and your wife can have some time together. And I said, well, we would love to go to Breckenridge. And he found a place, a member of the church with a condo in Breckenridge and went there. He said, what else would you like to do? I said, well, I, I love fly fishing. I'm terrible at it. I, I hear you're a great fly fisherman. Why don't we go fly fishing? And so he said, great, I'll come by on Friday morning and we'll go have some fun together. So he comes in, up to Breckenridge and gets me. We drive down to the fishing bank and we're walking down to the bank and I notice he's only got one pole. And I said, hey, Joel, we only have one police. That's all we're going to need. I said, okay, I'll get to watch it. He said, no. He said, you're going to fish today. I said, oh, no, let's us. He said, no. You want to learn how to fly fish? I'm going to teach you how to fly fish. And for the next three hours, this guy just sat on my shoulder and taught me the traits of fly fishing. I kept wanting to give him the phone. He said, no, I'm not here to fish. I'm here to teach you how to fish. What I didn't know about Joel is a couple of years earlier, he had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Didn't know how many years he would have to live, but he wanted to live his life as a servant of God. And I was so humbled by a man who would take his day and give it to me so that I could enjoy that day of fly fishing. What is humility? It's the person who chooses to serve. The person who could move to the front has all the credentials to move to the front. But that person chooses, chooses humility. The Bible says to us, whenever we choose that humility, we open up the windows of heaven for our lives. I can imagine right now the heavenly situation and God standing there with buckets upon buckets of blessing. He wants to pour out upon his church, upon his people, upon families, upon marriages. Do you know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for humility. Someone who's willing to choose it. And it says whenever Jesus chose it, what did God do? Whenever Jesus chose to empty himself, God exalted him. Whenever Jesus chose the cross, he gave him a name which is above every name. Whenever he chose submission to authorities, every knee would bow, every tongue confess. When he chose obedience, he would be declared Lord and God. Interesting word in this text when you begin to read it. It's talking about all he did. Verse number nine begins with the word therefore. All of that humiliation, all of that servanthood, all of that giving himself, therefore, God exalted him, gave him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. I'm afraid in my life and maybe in yours, we don't get to the therefore. Because we never understand humility. We never get to the place where God can really pour out his blessings 
Because we're in the business of earning the blessings, claiming the blessings, grabbing the blessings, moving to the front so we can make sure we get ours. And what happens to us is we never get to the therefore, therefore we never get to the blessing. See, I'm convinced probably, and every one of us in this room today, there's a circumstance that God wants to bless with his power and his anointing. That God wants to show you his greatness and his goodness and his supernatural work. What he's waiting on is someone to show humility. Maybe something in your family's amiss right now. It maybe needs leadership, but maybe it needs humility. Someone is willing to show that. Maybe a, a broken relationship right now. And you wonder how you're going to win this or how you're going to get your point across. Could it be what God's doing? He's putting you in that situation so you and I can choose humility. And when we choose humility, wow, the power of God comes. Not because we have made it happen, but because the Bible says to us, He exalts the one who shows humility. Maybe at work, maybe in your neighborhood. There's a place in your life right now. God is asking you to make a choice. Are you going to stay at the table and watch it happen? Are you going to remove the garment, put the towel around your waist, become the one who lives out humility? Guess what happens? Not only will it bless you, but there's other people watching you and me. They don't need to see all of our abilities and all of our achievements. What they need to see is the power of God. That power comes through humility. Would you choose that today? You say, God, where will God take me? Well, the cross tells us where God will take us. Jesus chose the cross. When he chose the cross, we experienced his love. (laughs) When he chose the cross, we experienced his forgiveness. When he chose the cross, (laughs) we experienced the gift of eternal life and, and saw the blessings of God upon our lives question is today what are we going to choose for some of you today that choice could be that moment in your life where you choose to surrender your heart to Jesus and find salvation eternal life forgiveness of sin your choice is not this church your choice is not to make a spectacle Your choice is not to move yourself to the front. You're at a place where you need spiritual bankruptcy. So that out of spiritual bankruptcy, our God can show you how he can rescue you. Are you at that place today? Are you at that place where you would say, I've tried all I can do. I've done everything I can do. Now I'm at a place where I need Almighty God to do something. That's salvation. 
what we're going to have in this next moment. We're going to have what's called an invitation time. And we're going to invite you to come publicly to give your life to Christ. That coming down an aisle (laughs) is an act of humility. And saying, I need to be rescued. And let me say to you, Apart from that humility, there will never be salvation. In a moment, I'm going to pray. and We're going to just sing a couple of verses of a song that's very familiar called Just As I Am. I'm going to go to the front. I'm not your answer, but God's your answer. Maybe others of you today. You have some situations in your life that you need God. And you're coming today to pray. is an act of humility. You're even saying in front of your church family, I'm desperate and I need God. What will be your choice today? Some will choose just to stand there and hope God does something. Others might choose to come and pray as an act of humility. And in that moment of humility, guess what will happen? power of God is what will happen. So I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. God speaks to your heart. I'm going to be right here to help you. Father, thank you today. Thank you today that Jesus just didn't sit on a chair and teach. That he got up in front of everybody and took the form of a servant. Oh, God, today, you're calling some people in this room out of their desperation to come and say, I need God to be at work in this situation. I need God to save me. I need God to rescue me. Oh, God, would you speak to our hearts today? And would we truly come today, not out of a sense of show, but out of a sense to show our humility in coming to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.